0: I was traveling this week. I went to Toronto to see uh, a client. And um, there's it great. It's a great trip, uh, with the minor setback that on the way there in Detroit, I had an awesome burger. And that burger had some thing inside of it that ruined my digestion for like three days. I got a bug. And because of that stomach bug, I didn't really sleep very much. So Friday morning when I flew back, I had to be at the airport at 4 a.m. And I was tired. And after passing through customs and uh, checking in, I turned the corner to find out that the terminal had lost all power. (laughs) So it was hot in there, and there was no lights, and everybody was panicking. Except me, I was just tired. So I just sat there and watched other people panic. Um, I was sitting at a table, and not long after I sat down, a man walked up who was dressed in very nice clothing. And he sat down... And uh, we got to speaking a little bit. And and then shortly thereafter, another guy dressed nicely came up to us as well. And I'm going to try and represent to you what happened. Oh, yeah, man, Uh, I got to get back. I can't have this. This flight really can't be delayed. I've got clients waiting on me. Oh yeah, really? No, man, I'm going to uh I'm going to go home and take a nap cuz I don't have a meeting until 3. No, man, I mean I the meeting's really not that big of a deal. It's just that my clients, man, my clients they could have chosen any other lawyer in Atlanta, but they wait 2 months just to meet with me. Oh yeah? Oh man, yeah. I uh my client, H and M, man, they they are the best. I mean, they they're just great. Yeah, they work with only me in North and South America. Oh, oh, okay. What's uh, uh, you you live in Atlanta? Well, actually, I've got a beachfront property, twenty yards off the shore. It's great, man. Work from home. It's fantastic. And this conversation unfolded in this way for a while. It was a spectacle on the one hand. But on the other hand, it was just so ordinary. Right? I've listened to conversations like these all my life. Let's be honest. I've participated in conversations like these all my life. It's funny, you know, we're always teaching people how important we are. Even total strangers. We're always at work to teach the world our worth. I mean, there are ways to do it that seem humble, but be honest, you want people to know. You want people to know your worth. We strive for the prestige that we feel is due to us. And when we see this desperate need for honor play out in conversations like these, it's a little awkward, right? When it's apparent on that level, it might feel uncomfortable, but man, that's not nearly as bad as it gets. If you have time this week, Google the words, do you know who I am? And what you'll find is a list, more than one. Lists of celebrities and politicians who have declared that the current situation is inappropriate. I should not be treated like that guy. I should not be treated like this gal. I am more important than they are. You don't understand the dignity of my station. I'm wealthy. I'm famous. I'm powerful. Treat me thus. Do you know who I am? Think about that question for a moment. Because those six words tell a long story. When people ask questions like this, it says something about what they want. Or when we begin to drop casual hints in everyday conversation... Illusions to wealth or to position or to influence. It says something about what we want. We want people to understand our worth. We want the prestige that we feel like we've earned. We want the dignity of our station. It's a basic feature of humanity. We place ourselves in positions which we believe deserve respect. And then we assert our influence to receive that respect. CEOs are treated with the dignity due to CEOs. And if they aren't, it gets a little messy. Celebrities are treated with the prestige due to celebrities. And if they aren't, sometimes it gets messy. Senators and representatives and presidents are treated with the honor of their office. And if they aren't, It can get messy. That's the way the world works. We demand dignity, even from the least notable stranger. Each of us in our own way, perhaps, but everybody at times demands the dignity they feel they've earned. But this passage is about a king who doesn't. And if you can remember the last time you dropped a hint of your own influence or your own worth, of your own impressive record, then you may be in a place to understand what it is that makes this king so extraordinary. I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. Show me your Bibles when you're there. I do it anymore just to see you guys do it back. (laughs) So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And then all people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Okay, so the first thing I want to address is a pretty regular misunderstanding of this story. The way that this passage reads has led a number of teachers and writers to suggest that David is dancing naked in the streets of Jerusalem. Yes, I said naked. But we've got to deal with it because it's there. Reread Michal's words in verse 20. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his female, his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows that shamelessly uncovers himself. Now the main argument here is that McCall is speaking literally. The idea is that David, who is not merely wearing the linen ephod of a priest, but and here's the important distinction that he's wearing only the linen ephod of a priest with no undergarments. And so David is jumping and leaping in the streets with such vigor that his linen ephod is leaping with him, exposing all the men, women, and kiddos on the street to, well, to David's private places. Sorry, guys, this is awkward. And obviously McCall has a problem with it because gross. So let me tell you how I know that David was most definitely not a creeper. First of all, and this definitely isn't a top priority in the commentaries, but come on, we all speak English. First of all, that's not how words work. Here's what I mean. Say you embezzle funds from your business for 10 years. And I find out about it, and I'm upset because you've broken the law and somehow... We're all complicit, and the cops are on their way, right? Do I say to you, well, 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 you've really outdone yourself today embezzling money like some guy who embezzles money? No, I don't, because that's not how words work. I'd say something maybe like this, well, 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 you've really outdone yourself today embezzling money like a common thief. And that would make sense because that is how words work. It's a simile. You compare one thing to a different but somehow theoretically similar thing in order to shed light on the first thing. Similes don't make sense if you're comparing a thing to a thing that's just like it, they're not useful anymore. So take a look back at McCall's statement how the king of Israel, honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his female servants, servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, if Mikhail was actually suggesting that David had exposed himself in the literal sense to the people, then this simile actually communicates nothing. And that's the first reason we shouldn't read this passage that way. Second, and this is where the commentaries start chiming in, the second reason is that this reading falls apart because that's not how Israelite clothes work. David was wearing the garments of a priest, and the priests were required, actually required by law, to wear underwear. I'm not kidding. Nakedness in the presence of God was actually punishable by death measures had to be taken to make sure that your nakedness wasn't exposed in God's presence while facilitating God's worship. And that's a big deal here because David is doing both. And we know from two paragraphs back that God's nearness means wrath for those who break the covenant. If David had been exposing himself to the crowds, he would also have been exposing himself before the ark of God while facilitating the worship of God and that would be a blatant violation of the covenant just like when Uzzah reached out to grab the ark and that would mean death for David just like it meant death for Uzzah David wasn't dancing naked because David was dressed as a priest would dress and that means David was wearing underwear (laughs) and if David was wearing underwear it doesn't matter how enthusiastically he was dancing Okay, last thing before we bury this bad reading. The last reason we know that David was not dancing naked is this. The word that, that, that McCall uses to accuse David of indecency, this word uncovered, it is never once used to reference nakedness in all of Samuel or in any of the subsequent histories. It typically, it typically means something like reveal or disclose. It's the word used when God reveals himself to Samuel early in the book or when Jonathan and his armor bearer reveal themselves to the Philistines. In fact, in all of the Bible, this word only means exposed in the creepy sense when it's accompanied by the Hebrew word that means nakedness. So David was not dancing naked in the streets because that's not how words work and that's not how clothes work and that's not how Hebrew works. And if that's the case, what was McCall so upset about? If McCall is not legitimately angry because David's being a creep, then what does she mean? What is about David's behavior that has inspired this rebuke? That's a great question. Let's get back to the text. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of God with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. I want to talk for a moment about royal robes. Because we've spent a lot of time recently talking about what David was wearing as the ark returns to Israel. But we've hardly noticed what he isn't wearing. Now, I know this seems silly, but I really do think it's a valuable experience. I want you to close your eyes with me for a moment while we imagine a world without CNN or Fox News. Imagine you've never seen a photo before. Imagine that canvas paintings don't yet exist. Your life is planting seeds, tending to sheep, going to market, raising kids, enjoying meals with your neighbors. Very little in your life relates to anything outside a three-mile radius. Imagine a life without CNN. Got it? Okay, now, how do you know who the king is? I mean, you've never seen him before. He's not from your tribe. He's not from your region. A buddy across town says he's met him once, but he's all talk. So how would you know if that stranger shopping for pomegranates in the next stall Isn't the king? What distinguishes the king from everyone else? If you haven't opened your eyes now, you're welcome to. Sorry. It's tough for us, the beneficiaries of modern media, to understand the importance of royal attire. But if you can place yourself in this situation, you might just understand how important it is for the king to dress like a king. Especially on an occasion like this one, wherein all the tribes of Israel are collected. This is one of the first, for some perhaps the only opportunity ever to see the king for who he is. To reflect on his majesty And for that confidence to bolster the strength of this new kingdom of Israel. The royal robes of the king of Israel were the symbol of the majesty and dignity of the office. And Michal knew this firsthand. King Saul was never without his royal robes. Before the people on the battlefield parading victorious among the tribes, King Saul wore the royal attire with all the dignity of his office. He demanded that dignity. Every moment he was chasing David throughout the wilderness to protect his crumbling kingdom, he donned the royal attire. No stranger among the people of Israel could mistake his presence. For all his failings... Saul was never not a king. That is, except on two notable occasions. Do you remember when Saul was chasing David up the mountain? When King Saul, the madman, was chasing David and the prophet uh, Samuel on the hill outside Ramah? He ascends the hill in defiance of the will of God. And as he reaches the crest... What happens? The Spirit of God falls. And Saul the king prophesies. But before he does, he strips off his royal robes. And he lies naked before the God of Israel. Because when God is near, fake kings aren't allowed to masquerade. And later, when Saul chases David into the deep desert wilderness... When the armies of Israel had cornered David and his mighty men at the cave at the spring of Engedi, Saul, who didn't know that David was there, climbed into that very same cave to relieve himself. And on that day, the king of Israel cut off the hem of his robe, forcing this pretender king to strip off his signs of royalty. On two occasions, Saul was forced to set aside his royal robes. And in both cases, the meaning was the same. God had chosen a better man. And when the spirit of God falls, when God's chosen is near, the symbol of royalty is stripped away from the pretender king. And that means something because the royal robes of the king of Israel were a symbol of strength. A demonstration of majesty, an evidence of power. They were such an important symbol that God Himself chose to use that symbol to remind the people of His great promises. So let's return to our original question What was McCall angry about? Why was she angry with David? Okay, one more time. Look back one more time at the passage. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing, and she despised him. The first answer to our question is implied in the statement, David was wearing a linen ephod. To wear a linen ephod, to dress in the garments of a priest, you'd have to strip down. This isn't a denim jacket. You can't just layer it on top of whatever you're already wearing. No, to put on the linen ephod, David would have had to take off his royal robes. He would have had to set aside his royal robes in order to don the priest's uniform. And that is a political decision. Remember the life without CNN? When David had gathered all the tribes of Israel, not many had seen their newly crowned king. Only once had Israel gathered before him. Only one time. A whole nation was gathered in a small town. And perhaps some had caught glimpses. Maybe the folks near the front. They don't have like, this is not inauguration, or what do you call it, uh, when the... President's elected. This is not one of those. There's not big screens everywhere and microphones. Who do this? Right? Perhaps they'd caught glimpses then. Or perhaps they had memories of David parading through victorious. The mighty conqueror of Saul's enemies. But the people of Israel were hardly familiar with David when he made the decision to bring the ark to Jerusalem. This moment, then, will be their first real impression of the new king of Israel. And unlike Saul, who always left the first impression of grandeur, whose height and bulk and royal robes always left the impression of might and majesty, David chose to introduce himself to the people of Israel in the humble garments of a priest's servant. Not only that, but as the newly crowned king approaches the gates of Jerusalem, he's dancing and leaping before the Lord. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever seen someone who is not a professional dancer dancing and leaping in celebration. But last week, I sort of moved my arms a bit and bobbed in a circle, and you guys didn't let me hear the end of it. (laughs) Because dancing, guys, looks ridiculous. All of our culture's dances are scripted and staged and executed by trained professionals. But this sort of dancing, it doesn't look dignified, it doesn't look majestic, and it certainly doesn't look royal. It looks silly. It is an unhinged expression of joy. Of unrestrained celebration, and it isn't meant to look respectable. So here is David introducing himself to the people of the kingdom of Israel. And rather than riding victorious through the gates, donned by royal robes, escorted by the king's guards, rather than bearing all the trappings of majesty, David has set them aside. He has set aside the royal robes. He has set aside the royal entourage. He has set aside the royal cavalry. Today, David wears the linen of the priest, and he dances and leaps before the Lord. All the dignity of royal office was set aside on this day, and that is why Michal was upset. Think about it. All her life she was given the impression of majesty. The king in her house, the king in his house were careful to reflect the dignity of the office, careful to maintain the prestige. Never was Saul without his royal robes, his throne, his royal entourage. Never was he without his crown. It is the way of royalty and she knows it. She's lived that life. Yet here is David the newly crowned king of Israel in perhaps the most brilliant opportunity to brandish the majesty of the office. In perhaps the most important moment to secure the allegiance of his people and the security of his house forever. In this pivotal political moment, David has gone bananas. He's traded outfits with a priest. He's dismissed his royal entourage. And he's dancing and leaping in the streets like a madman. All the dignity. All the dignity of the office is gone. And McCall hates every second of it. But if you see this moment for what it is, if you recognize that in this moment, David has set aside his royal glory to serve as a priest of the people of God. You'll begin to trace the shadows of this passage. We spoke briefly last week about the shadows of this story. David, the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, wears a linen ephod, and that should have stricken, stri- stricken, struck, struck, struck. That should strike you as odd because this king isn't a Levite. Kings aren't allowed to wear the garments of a priest to serve before the altar of the Lord with one exception. The city of Jerusalem was first called Salem. You can see it in the name, Jerusalem. And the only exception to that rule was Salem's ancient king, Melchizedek, king of Salem, whose name means king of righteousness, whose title means king of peace, and who was himself priest of the Most High God. David's first act as king was to take the city of Jerusalem, long promised to the people of Israel. And as soon as he did, he inherited the role of priest-king Now, sometimes, guys, the Bible whispers. And sometimes the Bible speaks. But sometimes the Bible shouts. And right now, the Scriptures are shouting, this story is about Jesus. David, king of Israel, king of Jerusalem, takes the mantle of Melchizedek, King of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God. There is hardly a clearer shadow in all of the ancient stories. Now think about what David is doing in terms of whom David is foreshadowing. Reread, start in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal the daughter of Saul looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then they all departed, each to their own home in the promised land. Okay, now let's trace the shadows. Think about what David is doing in terms of whom he's foreshadowing. One, the king sets aside any signs of majesty, he steps away from the dignity of his office, he leaves behind the royal glory. Two, the king sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Three, the king blesses the people of God. Four, the king celebrates with a great feast in New Jerusalem. And five, the king sends his people to rest safe in the promised land. It's everything Literally, everything that unfolds in this passage is a foreshadow of what's to come. This story is about Jesus as much as it's about David. This story is about Jesus, the Son of God, who set aside unspeakable glory and he traded it for flesh. For the joy set before him, Jesus gave up for a time the dignity of his office. He took off the royal robes to wear the humble garments of a priest. Jesus was born to a virgin in a barn in order to sacrifice his body for his people. His flesh and blood was offered in exchange for peace. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And after that peace was secured, Jesus blessed his people. And he will one day celebrate their forever peace with a great feast in a new Jerusalem. And he will secure their rest forever in a promised land. Amen. Every sentence of this story whispers his name or shouts it. He is there dancing in the streets. He is there sacrificing for his people. But where are you in this story? Are you behind the window? David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now listen to those words. Think about those words for a moment. I will celebrate for the Lord And I will make myself yet more contemptible in your eyes. But these servants, by them I shall be held in honor. You fit into this passage in one of two ways. You are either the foolish servant on the street, honoring our great king priest, or you are behind the window. There's a guy named Christopher Hitchens. He's um, notorious among Christians because he hates the gospel. But I have a secret affection for him and for his writings because Christopher Hitchens was a wordsmith. Very few guys now who write regularly who are as prolific as he was write with such eloquence he could spin a sentence it was amazing i've seen video of him doing it live without any preparation words to use words like that it's stunning Uh, not long ago about three years ago i think he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer esophageal throat cancer Um, And he was dying. It was bad. He made it a point of pride. Though he had spent his life attacking the scriptures. Though he had spent his life mocking the God who was his only hope. He made it a point of pride to brag that never once has he considered turning back. If ever there has been a wise writer, I think he's among them, right? If ever there has been someone who represents the wisdom of the world, certainly he would be counted among them. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach... Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The female servants of servants. That's who you are. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Like it or not, the message of the cross is foolishness offered to fools. And the world full of clever men will stand behind the window, and they will mock the king who has set aside his dignity. But look, after the smoldering coals of the sacrifice were spent, and after the hum of the feast had waned, these foolish servant girls walked away blessed by a humble king to rest in a promised land. And the princess behind the window was cursed. Embrace the foolishness of the cross. Reject the wisdom of the world. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.